Well, good morning again. Our scripture, our, yeah, our scripture reading <laughs> comes from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to that passage. And uh, let me say, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles on the back table. You're welcome to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible and keep it. Write your name in the front, uh, take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as uh, we study God's Word together. Uh, Let me also say, if you have children here, uh, there are some outlines of the sermon in the back that are kind of fill in the blank, and that might be helpful for them to follow along with the sermon. Maybe even if you're not a child, you might want to do that. That might be helpful. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that your word is nourishment to our souls. And we pray, Father, that as we come to your word this morning, that you would feed us, that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit, open our ears, soften our hearts, Uh, enable us to understand and receive your word. And we pray that that as we do that, you, by the work of your spirit, would show us your son Jesus in all of his glory, and that we would be transformed uh, from one degree of glory to another, as the scriptures say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Well, when was the last time you turned down an invitation to a party? Maybe you thought the uh, party would be exceptionally boring and you didn't want to go. Maybe you were just busy and you couldn't go, though you really wanted to. Or maybe, maybe if you are more from the female half of our human race, you said, well, I simply won't have anything to wear, so I can't go. Or maybe, maybe you despised the person who was throwing the party and you didn't want to go because you did not want to go. Well, there are certain kinds of invitations that you don't turn down 
If, you, if the President of the United States invited you to Thanksgiving dinner at the White House, really regardless of your political leanings, you'd probably go because he's the President of the United States of America. Now, in some circles, Christianity is seen as kind of a, a dour religion of miserable people. It's also kind of exclusivist and elitist, which is just as well, because who would want to be a part of that anyway? But our text this morning argues against that assessment. It actually argues that Christianity is, is, is a preparation for a party, a party that's open to all and yet open to all on God's terms and not ours. So our passage this morning is an invitation. It's an invitation to the wedding feast. God is inviting all of us to a great feast, and he calls us to come properly clothed in glorious garments to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb of his Son, Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about the wedding feast, the open invitation, and the proper attire. And uh, you can see that outline on the back of your bulletin if you'd uh, like to use that space to take notes. First, let's talk about the wedding feast. Now, I, I want to say something obvious at first, and, and that is that celebration and mourning are opposites. Right? Weddings and funerals are not the same thing. Uh, in a celebration, it's, you are responding to something wonderful that has happened. Uh, you're excited, you're joyful, you're, you're loud, you can't contain your happiness. And in mourning, you are responding to something horrible that's happened. You're, you're sad, you're grieved, you're experiencing inner pain. Celebration and mourning in, in some cultures, both of them are, are tame and, and quiet and even emotionally steady. But in Hebrew culture, actually both of them were lively and physical and passionate. I mean, think about this. In, in Hebrew culture, if you were mourning, you would tear your clothes, you would put on sackcloth, and then put dust and ashes on your head, and then you wouldn't eat. You wouldn't eat a thing. Have you ever been so sad that you wouldn't eat? Uh, we tend to actually associate that with worry, right? Have you ever been so worried that you couldn't eat? Right? That, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. In Hebrew culture, uh, fasting was a sign of mourning, a sign of sadness. On the other hand, celebrating, if you were celebrating, you dressed yourselves up in, in festal garments, you gathered together with your friends, and you feasted, and you sung, and you danced. And in, in some ways, those are two ends of the scale, right? Mourning and celebrating, but uh, both of them were, uh, in ancient Hebrew culture, very physical, very visceral, very emotional. What that meant, of course, is that Hebrew parties are the kind of parties that you wanted to go to. There was eating and there was drinking, there was singing and there was dancing, not, not sinfully, right, but joyfully. Uh, psalm 30 describes celebrating like this in, in Psalm 30, 11 to 12. Uh, the psalmist says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Or when God talks about restoring his people in the book of Jeremiah, he, he talks about things like adorning themselves with tambourines. Now, I've tried to imagine that. 
But you get the picture, right? They're celebrating going on. Uh, he talks about going forth in the dance of merrymakers, of planting vineyards and eating its fruit. He exhorts them to sing aloud with gladness and shout. And we're told, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Again, you see the language of dancing and feasting and rejoicing. Yet no Hebrew party, right, would have been boring. And yet the size, of the, party that, the size of the party that you throw is limited to your means, right? Your means limit how many guests you can invite. They, they may limit the quality of the food. But of course, what that means is a king, a king could throw one amazing party. And here's what Jesus says about the kingdom of God in chapter 22, verse 2 of Matthew. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, it doesn't say much more than that about the feast here, although it, 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 we do know that it was, it was large and it was lavish because of what verse 4 says. Verse 4, we're told that the king says, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast oxen and fat calves. Now think about it. If you need multiple oxen and multiple calves to feed your guests, that's going to be one big party. And weddings in particular, of course, are times to feast, times to celebrate. In some ways, you see this even in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Uh, think about Adam and Eve, right? In the beginning, God makes man and woman. He brings them together. God uh, presents Eve to Adam as, as uh, presenting the bride to the bridegroom as a father giving away his daughter. And, and, and what does he do with the newly married couple? Well, he puts them in a garden with all kinds of trees, pleasant to the sight and good for food, we're told. And he says, all of these are yours to eat, every tree except one, right? Feast on my good world. In marriage and feasting, uh, even in the beginning, go hand in hand. We see it elsewhere. We see it in, in Jesus' miracle, his very first miracle. Uh, you may remember that Jesus' very first miracle was performed at a wedding in Cana. And uh, Jesus was attending this wedding, and they ran out of wine. By the way, wedding celebrations in those days could, could run for a week, right? You didn't go for a day. You didn't go for an hour. You went for a week to celebrate. And uh, Jesus, prodded by his mother, famously turns water into wine so that they have enough wine for the rest of the celebration. Now, Jesus used, uh, have, have you ever thought, have you ever tried to calculate how much wine Jesus made for that wedding party? Uh, Jesus used, we're told, six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. So, you know, 25 gallons of water per jar, six jars, that's 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Weddings were a time to feast, a time to celebrate. Why is that? Well, for the simple reason that, that, at least one reason, the Bible teaches that, that the relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife is really just a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. See, we, what we are celebrating when we, when we celebrate the union of these two people, whoever they may be, we're, we're celebrating really just the shadow of the reality of, of the union between God 
and humanity in Christ. That delightful intimacy that, that, that will be enjoyed between these two people is just a reflection of the delightful intimacy that we were made to have with God and can have through Jesus. And so all of these weddings, right, Adam and Eve, the wedding at Cana, all the weddings that we go to, all of them point forward to a future wedding, the Bible tells us. We read about it earlier in Revelation 21. In Revelation 19, right, there were, there's a great multitude that shouts out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. There's a wedding to come, the Bible says. All of history is moving forward to this wedding feast, this celebration of the union of God with His people in Jesus the Lamb. Now, one of the interesting things that this means is, as Christians, uh, we are simply betrothed to Christ. Right? The wedding, the consummation is yet to come when we see him face to face and when we, uh, when, when we enter into the home that he has prepared for us, his bride. History is headed to a party. It's headed to a celebration, the celebration of the union of God with his people in Jesus. This brings us to the invitation, the open invitation. The majority of the parable is really about this invitation, isn't it? And we see at least four things about it. I'll go through them quickly, but we'll see the invitation of the king, the rejection of the king, the anger of the king, and then the grace of the king. So first, the invitation in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, the king sent his servants, were told, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now it's noteworthy, right, that the king sends his servants to call those who had already been invited, right? Uh, They didn't have iPhones and Facebook and Evites to remind them that the time had come. And so the king who had already invited them, we're told, sends his servants to call them. It's time to come to the wedding. As we said earlier, right, if you get an invitation, even from a governor, but much less a president and certainly a king, right, you're not going to say no to that invitation. You're going to go. Well, here the king's son was getting married, right? This is a time to celebrate. It's a time to rejoice, to pull out all the stops, to roll out the red carpet, to kill the fattened calf or calves in this case. And yet in the same breath with the king's invitation, we get the king's rejection as well. Verse 3 says, but they would not come. We hear echoes of the parable of the tenants we heard about last week. The king sends his servant to those who are invited, but they wouldn't come. So the king sends other servants. It must be a mistake. Maybe they didn't understand that the king is patient with those guests that he invited. So he he sends more servants, and this time they have a message, these servants, in in their mouths. In in verses 4 and 5, the king tells them uh, to tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. Now we have two different levels of response at this point. There's, There's one group that just kind of ignores the message. They don't really show antagonism outwardly. They, they simply ignore it. They go off one to the farm, one to the business. Maybe they would say they don't mean to be rude, but they just have other things to do. Now, we're not told of anything pressing here. 
just busyness, just life. How many of us treat God in the same way, right? We ignore God because, because we're busy, and the busyness of life kind of takes over, and maybe we're not outwardly antagonistic, but we just, well, I've got other things to do. Then there's this second group that is antagonistic. They seize the servants. They treat them shamefully. They kill them. Now, my guess is you've never responded to a wedding invitation like that. It's odd. Why would they molest the servants? Why put them to death? Well, really, there's only one possible reason, or at least only one possible reason that I can think of, and that is that they hate the king. See, only if you despise the king would you despise his servants, and their actions point to their hearts. Well, this arouses the anger of the king. That happens in verse 7. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king deals swift justice to the murderers. He destroys them. He burns their city. I mean, they were murderers after all. They hated the king. They probably would have killed him had they been given the chance. And so he puts them to death. He administers justice. Of course, once you've killed all the dinner guests that were on your invite list, uh, that seems to put kind of a damper on your party. And so the parable keeps going in verses 8 and 10. We're told, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And this brings us to the grace of the king. Right, the king is determined to throw an extravagant party for his son. You can't have a party without guests. And so the king simply sends his servants out to find new guests. Right? Go, go, just start inviting people, anybody, to honor my son at the wedding feast. So the servants go. They go out and they, they gather all the people they find, both good and bad, we're told, until the wedding hall is filled. It's interesting that Matthew says both good and bad. Well, why would he say that? Both good and bad come. Well, remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's been talking to the religious leaders for uh, at least a chapter now. And as with the parable of the tenants we saw last week where the tenants represent uh, the religious leaders who reject Jesus. Here, the first guests also represent the same religious leaders who reject Jesus. And, and think about it. I mean, who would you expect to be at God's party? Who would you expect to be there? Well, you religious people, right? I mean, uh, the, the good people, right? The upright people, the, the moral people, uh, the, the people who know their theology, who have their God talk down, right? Those are the people you would expect and yet it is just the religious leaders of Israel who had been invited, but who were mistreating the prophets, the God's servants, for generations, and who finally rejected God's Son. See, the religious people of Jesus' day were, were the invited, but they refused to come, and so they faced only destruction in the end. And so rather than proper guests, the guests that everybody would have expected, the king's hall is filled with the outcasts, right? The, the social rejects, the sinners, the down and out, the people he found sitting on the side of the road. And what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is that if you happen to be religious, right, 
It means that just because you go through the motions of religion, it doesn't mean that you have a place at the table unless you're willing to come and honor the Son. To make that concrete, right? I mean, religious behavior, apart from faith in Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Son of the great King, does not secure you a place at the great feast. And you have to ask yourself, right, even if you're religious on some level, even if you come to church, even if you read your Bibles and and pray, all good things, which you should do, but even if you do those things, are you really too busy for God in your life? Are you even bothered that He might make demands on you outside of those specific religious activities that you do, that He might have expectations of you? Or are you unwilling to acknowledge Jesus and honor the Son? But there's more, of course, right? The invitation that was first given to the religious leaders who rejected it, it eventually is sent out to all. Now, uh, we recently watched uh, a movie in the Hershey house, the movie Home. And uh, one of the big events in the movie Home is uh, the character, the alien character, O is his name, O. He, He wants to invite a friend to a housewarming party, so he sends him an email, but he accidentally sends the Evite to everyone in the galaxy. And much of the rest of the movie is spent trying to undo that mistake, because there are certain people they don't want to come. Uh, Well, God's invitation is to everyone in the galaxy. And uh, we, we read throughout Scripture these invitations again and again. You find God's lavish invitations. Uh, in Isaiah, you, you read this, Come, everyone who thirsts, uh, uh, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Or uh, in another place in Isaiah, God says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Revelation 22, the the last invitation in Scripture. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires take the water of life without price. Who are these invitations for? Well, they're for you. They're for all of us. They're for you to come to God through Jesus, to find rest for your souls, to have your thir- the thirst of your souls quenched, to have your sins forgiven. You right now today can respond to God's invitation and, and come to his wedding feast, as it were, by putting your faith in Jesus the Son. And maybe you have responded. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus. You've rested in Him. You've turned to Him. You believe in Him. And maybe you've done that for years and decades. If you have responded, that means that that you are God's servant and that that the invitation is then for you to give out. You are to go to the main roads, to your workplaces and your classrooms, to your neighborhoods and your dorm rooms, to, to the restaurants and the bars. And you're to invite all that you find both good and bad, to come to the wedding feast. See, the wedding reception is coming. The invitations are out. Well, what do you do then? Well, it's time to get dressed. 
And that brings us to the third point, the proper attire. We've already mentioned that when you celebrate, you tend to dress up. And, uh, you know, whether that's for a wedding, whether it's for your prom night, whether it's for graduation, whatever it is, special occasions call for special clothes. It's a way of getting your whole body into celebrating, right? I mean, you, you decorate a sanctuary for a wedding, you decorate a gym for uh, prom night, right? You decorate the auditorium for graduation. We, when you get dressed up for special occasions, what you're doing is you, you're, you're decorating your bodies, as it were, right? So that, that your whole person can, can participate in celebrating. Well, why would we do that? Well, one reason is this. Think, go back to Genesis again. Go back to, to Adam and Eve when God created them. God created Adam and Eve and they were naked. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed? Well, they were not ashamed because human beings were created with glory. They were created with, with greatness. Uh, Psalm 8 says that humanity was crowned with glory and honor. Uh, that we were clothed with the image of God at creation and we reflected His glory, we reflected His greatness, so we were ourselves glorious to behold. And much of that glory, that image, is found in, in righteousness, righteousness. Human beings were created righteous, that we were created upright. We were clothed in God's image, we were clothed in His glory, we were clothed in His righteousness. And so, so glory and greatness and, and righteousness, right, that's the opposite of shame. We had no reason to be ashamed. So the man and his wife were both naked and knew no shame because they were clothed in the glory of God. Well, what happens? What happens is Adam and Eve reject God's rule. Uh, they eat uh, of the one fruit from which God commanded them not to eat, right? That first wedding feast of these two newlyweds is stained by stolen fruit. They wanted to be like gods themselves, to have their own glory rather than reflect the glory of the one true God. And so they were left with their own glory, the, the glory of dust. And human beings, rather than shining with the glory of the righteousness of God, are left with the shame of, of having once been, of having lost what was, right? like, like a, a washed-up old athlete or an out-of-work old actor that once was something, and now is just a shell of what they once were. And so what do we do? We, we clothe our unrighteousness. We clothe our shame. We cover our rebellion. In fact, there's something tragic oftentimes in clothing because it, it becomes, doesn't have to be, but it, it at times becomes kind of a futile attempt to grasp at the transcendent glory that we once had. And I want to be glorious. I want to look glorious. It's because you were created to be glorious and look glorious. Well, it would seem that Jesus' parable of the wedding feast is over. All of the guests come in, but then it keeps going in verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. The king has his party. The guests have all arrived to honor the son, to celebrate his wedding, to eat and drink and to enjoy themselves in the father's presence. 
And the king comes to look at his guests. And there's a man there. In the midst of all the splendor and all the pomp and all the regalia, there's a man there who has no wedding garment. He's not properly clothed. He, he's like a stain on the glory of the scene. And the king comes to him and he says, friend. Notice the, the king's patience and his grace. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, I think we're tempted to be angry with the king. I mean, you're a king. What do you know, right? I mean, not everyone can dress in purple robes. Many, many people in the ancient world had one set of clothes, right? One robe to keep them warm at night. He went and got these people off the streets. I mean, what did he expect? I mean, if you go out and gather beggars off the streets and bring them into your house for a meal, you don't then berate them for being smelly and dirty. See, we're tempted to be angry at the king that he has these unrealistic expectations, but we shouldn't be. Notice verse 12. Verse 12, he asks the, the, the man, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Why was he speechless? Apparently, he had no excuse. Maybe, just maybe, maybe they were handing out wedding garments at the door. I, I don't know. But the man knew that he could have had a wedding garment. He doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't say, well, these are the only clothes I have. He doesn't say, well, I didn't get a chance to stop at home first, right? No excuse. He's just speechless. The man doesn't argue. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't protest, but he is punished. In fact, he's bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. The symbolism there is the symbolism of hell, the place where, be, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus concludes that many are called, many are invited, but few are chosen. Why is that? Because every guest must be made ready. You know, Adam and Eve's first wedding feast was stained with stolen fruit and brought enmity to the world, brokenness to relationships, friction in marriage, distance between God and humanity. It brought shame on who we are because the glory of God no longer shines through us as it once did. We all try to cover our shame with, with some earthly glory. Maybe that's physical beauty. Maybe it's academic achievements. Maybe it's some great accomplishment. Maybe it's exacting moral behavior. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to cover over our shame. We're trying to regain the glory that we once lost. But in order to be restored again to God, in order to be united to Him, in order to be married, in order to feast in His presence, our sin must be dealt with. And we must be clothed again with true glory. And this happens in the scriptures in a few ways, right? We see Jesus. Jesus comes into the world. He is clothed in our humanity. But then he goes naked to the cross where he bears our shame. He bears the punishment for our sin. And then our right and title to the feast comes because Jesus gives us his own righteousness. His own glory. When we believe in Christ, it, it, when we belong to Christ, we are in Christ, the Bible says. It's as if we have, we have put on Christ as a wedding garment. When we enter into that wedding hall and we sit down in that wedding feast, it is because we shine with the radiance of Christ's righteousness and glory. And the Father sees the righteousness of His Son and He says, Welcome to my wedding feast. Here's your seat with your name on it. But there's more. 
Because this is what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, the Bible teaches that Christ is making his bride, his church, glorious. This is true of our status. In one sense, you know, uh, we've been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. We're no longer sinners in the eyes of the Father if we belong to Jesus. But it's also true of the condition of our hearts, that Christ is making us glorious. It may not look like it now. I may not look radiant to you, but that is what Jesus is doing. You know, on the one hand, when we believe in Christ, we put on his glory, his righteousness. The Father sees that and we are welcomed into the feast. But over time, that same glory by the Spirit, it works itself into us so that we ourselves are cleansed and made pure and holy. Christ works in us the holiness without which, the Bible says, no one can see the Lord. You know, the Revelation passage that we mentioned earlier, it, it goes on. There's a great multitude that shouts out, starts out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, if you belong to Jesus, the Bible teaches that God has declared you to be righteous because of the glorious righteousness of Jesus himself. And God is also making you righteous as he conforms you to the glorious image of his son. One day, Jesus will present the church to himself in splendor. C.S. Lewis actually talks about this in a couple places. Uh, one is in the weight of glory a book called The Weight of Glory. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Now, he's not saying that we become literal gods and goddesses, but he is saying that, that we will take on the glorious image of the divine. We are being renewed in the image of of our Savior, and we will be glorious one day. So glorious, Lewis says, that, that if we were to see ourselves now, we would be tempted to worship ourselves because we're going to reflect the glory of God that fully. Yeah, actually, in The Great Divorce, another book of C.S. Lewis, he attempts to describe such people, and um, he says they are bright. The earth shakes under their tread. A tiny haze and a sweet smell goes up where they had crushed the grass and scattered the dew some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones did not seem less adorned, and the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. And he goes on. The point is he's, he's trying to put into words what that glory will be like, because Christ is making his people glorious. He has clothed us with his righteousness. He is working his glory into the very fabric of our being. And yet this parable, in the end, is not quite about that. It's about the one who thinks that he can enter the wedding feast apart from glory, apart from the work of Christ, 
apart from the gift of Christ's righteousness, apart from Christ's work for us and in us, and this one is cast out into the outer darkness, Jesus says. The place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, Jesus says you must have the wedding garment if you are to enter into the wedding feast. If you have not yet done so, I would encourage you to come to Jesus. You will receive his righteousness as a garment. You will receive his glory. You will have your place at the Father's table at the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of history. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, we love to celebrate. And I thank you that in Jesus you have given us something worth celebrating. That our sins would be forgiven, that death itself would be conquered, that we would be reconciled to you, our Father, and that we might dwell in your presence forever in the home that Jesus is preparing for us as our bridegroom. Father, help us to look to him and trust in him and rejoice in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.